0: And original shark in the hit TV show Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass seen on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite the Four Mindset Shifts for Senior Leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there, my name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia, also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, This guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dove is a just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership.
1: My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of TheBeardClub.com, and I just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique
0: approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Appjohn, as well as Davis, aka the Strategy
1: Man. And yep. if I'm going to describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous deep and conscious and that's exactly what you need from leadership right now hey guys this is devon harris original member of the jamaican bobstead team three-time olympian author speaker philanthropist he is one of the most
0: amazing guys you'll ever meet an amazing interviewer but at the same time an amazing speaker Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. Hi, I'm Jared Nichols, I'm a futurist executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are gonna be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status: taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise,
1: genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Berga, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders.
0: Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I call bullshit. Live your life, not somebody else's. Dov Barron to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there. I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership, and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations.
1: Hi there. My name is Rick Barker. I am the founder of the Music
0: Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Billieu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well thought out ideas, often counterintuitive, which is what, makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter.
1: Here's what I've been curious about for as long as I can remember. That part of the body that weighs approximately three pounds and consumes about 20% of the entire body's energy. Our brain's evolution is, in fact, fascinating. I wonder if you've ever considered if your brain that you have is different than that of our nomadic ancestors, and if it is, how is it different? What if we could take you on a guided tour through the history of the brain? Well, that's exactly what we're going to do. Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm your host, Doug Barron, and I am the Dragonist. To find out more about how you can hire me as a speaker or strategist for you or your organization, simply go to DovBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. This episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by the Dragon's Lair. Have you discovered your next evolution? You imagine being in a virtual classroom where I personally walk you through live trainings that, where I reveal the techniques and strategies that are previously only offered to CEOs C-suite executives, high-level entrepreneurs, athletes, and entertainers, and then being able to access all those trainings and the exclusive workbooks that go with them on demand. Well, that's what many of our listeners are now discovering. You now have that opportunity. So go on over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash, guess what? Dove Baron. So patreon.com forward slash Dove Baron. Takes about two minutes for us for you to join us. In fact, Many uh, of, of our past episodes are right there. You can have access to them. Things like ethical persuasion, becoming a meaning-driven leader, resilience in a time of chaos. There's so many fantastic um, trainings in there. Just go there right now, patreon.com forward slash DovBaron and secure your seat. And as a bonus, you'll also get access to these curiosity bites videos exclusively. All right, let's jump down on this episode. Our guest on this episode is Tim Ash. Tim Ash has been featured in Forbes Entrepreneur Magazine. He is a highly rated keynote speaker and presenter with over 200 events across four continents. He's acknowledged as an authority on on evolutionary psychology, and also on digital neuromarketing. He's a best-selling author of several books, including his latest, Unleash Your Primal Brain. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome fellow neurofreak and author of Unleash Your Dynamo Brain, Timus. Oh, thank you,
0: Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. I've never heard being called a neurofreak before. Uh, I've been called a lot worse, but that's a
1: first. (laughs) (laughs) That's a name that you don't mind being called. I, 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 you no, know, I love no, that
0: you on your show. I had to copy the brain like in your logo, and then that's how I get on your show. That's
1: so. how it is, right? have a common
0: interest in brains.
1: This is this, this is why you're here. <laughs> so <laughs> you're um, where I put where I always like to start is by asking my guests, what do you find yourself most curious about right now? It may or may not be in the context of what we're going to talk about, and that's fine. But what do you find yourself curious about right now? God, I have to say it. Pretty much everything is in the context of evolutionary psychology.
0: It is, so isn't it? The, uh, one of the things that I'm curious about right now is how to get us back from the brink of all of the political isolation. Like, how do you undo tribalism? Which is mm-hmm. definitely something I cover in the book. But uh, I, because I find myself hurtling down that road and saying, you know, screw
1: you to the mm-hmm. to the
0: other side, you know, and I just True. don't want to live there much longer.
1: It, it is a fascinating time from evolutionary psychology point of view in the context of of tribes um, and the tribalism that's going on. And I want to kind of start there because um, tribalism is breeds xenophobia. Um, xenophobia, for those who are not familiar with that word, and I realize some people are not, means basically, you know, us and only us, and you know, people want to stay inside of their country, they don't want other people coming in. And fear you and I have both, sorry, fear of the other, fear of the other, any other, actually. But xenophobia in the context of nationality, you know, I really wanted to ask you what it, you know, for you, you uh, were born in Russia, where well, you and I are both immigrants, you were born in Russia, um, you came here when you were a kid. Do you, I mean, back when you would have come, Russia was pretty hot as a subject. You know, it's only been hot since Donald Trump's presidency again, really, in a big way. But back in the, uh, certainly I remember in the 80s and and early 90s, you know, Russia was a big threat. And, you know, the Reds under the bed was certainly younger than that, but uh, earlier than that. Did you experience that tribalism? And, and coming from a tribe, you do you carry? did you carry any of that tribalism? Well, yeah,
0: and I think of tribes as a bunch of overlapping identities that we have. So there is the, okay, I was born in the Soviet Union tribe. Uh, there's the, um, I, I, my dad had a Jewish background, and that's why we were allowed to emigrate tribe. Right now, America is my adopted tribe. So there's all these overlays, and some of them are more regional or, or local as well, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the Mercedes driving tribe, you know, so some are voluntary, some are involuntary, but you can largely think of our identity as being kind of a, a pastiche of different cultural affiliations and tribes and whichever one is activated in the current context, that's what our allegiance is to at the moment. So yeah, I definitely felt kind of a, a tribalism. When I came here, I was like really anti-Soviet. You know, I was like screw those commie bastards and I'm an American sure. and, you know, we gotta be tough and hawkish on the Russians. Uh, actually not a bad idea given how we're, we have a
1: Manchurian candidate running the country. But anyway, that's another story. So, but do you remember what that was like even at school? You know, um, like, so, you know, you talked about this, you know, I, I did a video on on racism and I said, you know, I feel somewhat uncomfortable speaking about race because i i was born into the lucky sperm club i'm white um and at the same time so i don't know racism in that context of other skin color but i do understand prejudice because like you i was born jewish and got my nuts kicked on a regular basis for being jewish and had to battle in the streets because of that even though i wasn't wearing A Yarmulke or the the Jewish uniform and I you know, I wasn't I don't I didn't particularly look Jewish, but it didn't matter Um, But that was something I had to reveal about myself in order to receive that prejudice in some way Whereas somebody with race doesn't have to reveal it. They just walk in and that's there Did you find any of that with you? Well,
0: absolutely. I mean, when we came to this country, we were kind of like the token Soviet Jews, you know, every town we lived in, we were the first family. I'm like, Oh, cute! look at the little Russian Jew family. Right. Right. Uh, And, um, so, you know, people always, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have an accent. So like you say, I kind of passed for white and, um, unless you're an Orthodox Jew and you make a point of looking different, uh, you know, nobody can tell. Uh, but I, I had a lot of this, um, just really kind of crude stereotypical stuff like you know i'd get called a commie bastard sure this kind of stuff so it's more my identity not as a jew but as an immigrant from the soviet union and and there was still that kind of the cold war stuff was still pretty active when i got Mm -hmm. here
1: so what year was 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 it when you you arrived in in the u.s in
0: 1973 it was uh, we left right right around the time of the Yom kippur war in israel and ended up in the u.s in february of 74. So it was weird for me when we got here. It was like three presidents in eighteen months. <laughs> you know, so Nixon, Ford, Carter. I'm like, yeah, they must switch every six months or something. Yeah, of
1: course. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah, that. So, what was um? I'm trying to think. Uh, who was in? It was in power at that time in Russia.
0: Um, it was Brezhnev. He's the one. Brezhnev. Really yeah, saw, the, so. The door open and allowed that opening.
1: Uh, um, you know, the. Brezhnev was, uh, pre Brezhnev was pre. Uh, pre um what's the right word i've forgotten the word brain fart um was you know just before gorbachev and he kind of he softened a little bit yes yeah, so that was the
0: first opening and i think the the russians really needed american grain because they had some, several bad harvests of wheat so there was some pressure from the u.s senate jackson and Vanek made this amendment basically said you have to start letting soviet jews out this was in the days of refuseniks that were going on hunger strikes. The, the famous physicist Sakharov and uh, you know there was a lot of worldwide attention on that so they just cracked the door open maybe a thousand left the year we did and then oh. by 1979 about 50,000 people were
1: you know Soviet Jews were leaving that was the peak of it of that wave It, it it's so interesting in the context of the brain this tribalism thing um, and. You know, one of the things that I studied um, for many years and still fascinated by it, which is cult psychology. I'm fascinated by cult psychology Mm -hmm. because it's really about tribalism and it's really about understanding how that tribe is designed inside of a cult. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea of of a tribe and a cult is you don't leave us. You know, Mm -hmm. if you do, you're a betrayer you know so it's it's kind of fascinating because i know you said you've been back to russia and you mm-hmm. speak russian fluently and you can even pass yeah. for a native um, even though yeah, you're, you I don't have the here. cultural
0: knowledge you know i don't have the i don't know the politics the music the slang but i can pass and i still have a moscow accent is what i'm told that's so, phenomenal
1: you know. yeah so that, do you find that that's, that they embrace you because of that Um,
0: there, Russia is a particularly xenophobic is the term you use country, they're Mm -hmm. afraid of foreign influence. Uh, There's an inferiority complex there, of not being as good as other countries or nationalities. So they're, they're very close to foreign influence. In fact, this was again in the 70s, but the first black person I ever saw was in the airport leaving Moscow when I was eight years old. Wow. They never saw black people, you know, so it's a very closed society in that
1: sense. Fascinating. Really is a quite a fascinating subject. So, you know, we've already, already established that you are a Russian immigrant. Your family are Russian, Russian Jews who fled to the U S. Um, tell, tell us some more about you and about what people probably wouldn't know about you. I mean, there are probably, in all, in all fairness, probably lots of people on listening who've never heard of Tim Ash, and there's probably a lot have never heard of Dave Barron for that matter, but um, <laughs> it's <my laughs> show. Um, tell us a show. Yeah, everyone watching watching who's you.
0: listening knows you, that's for sure.
1: Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe somebody just said, listen to this bloke, he's a bit of an idiot, but you know, he might be all right. Uh, so t- tell us a little bit about you, what people wouldn't know or, or might not know about you. Well, okay, I'll give you kind
0: of the, the quick rewind and highlight reel. Again, we're in the Soviet Union. We came here. My parents were both civil engineers. And this was kind of like the equivalent of, you know, Chinese or Indian software engineers back in the day. In fact, yeah. it was the same kind of skill set. There were a lot of Chinese and Indians that were civil engineers in the 70s. So they had a good run and a second career. But when we left Russia, we had no idea what the U.S. was like. Like, we're bringing down comforters and frying pans. Uh, because who knows what they have in America, right? So, yeah, I know. And a black it's in and white the sardines TV set. In,
1: in, in case.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we then bought, we bought a black and white TV set so we could sell it in Austria on the way out and get dollars for it. I mean, it was just like letters we sent back to people 20, 30 years later, when people had been showing up in the U.S. as immigrants and saying, we read your letters in Moscow. They were like passed hand to hand to hand because that was like the only information you had about this weird world. And all you saw on TV would be like race riots and stuff. Again, maybe not that different from today. Um, so we came to the U S we moved around. My parents always picked places that had good public school systems. So we lived in Albany, New York, which is the capital of New York state and Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a great college town and then Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is where I went to high school, which was, uh, Outside of Philadelphia, in a, in a really nice place to live or grow up. Anyway, it's a nice place to be from. Is how
1: nice is. to be, be from. I and, understand. And
0: then I, you know, I, I when I applied to different universities, I got the full range of responses. I got um, accepted at Penn, which is a you know an Ivy League school. Waiting listed at MIT. Rejected in Princeton. And then I got a full ride academic scholarship on the beach in La Jolla, California. So I came out to UC San Diego. Really? Uh, I can't imagine why. I never left. Nude Beach, 3,000 miles from home. I'm good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, i university age, and there's a nude beach. Okay. Where is it? Antarctica. <laughs> Fantastic. No problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I went there my first summer. I got here in June, and for two months, I was. I would go down there a lot. So um, I ended up at UC San Diego, which is a, just a rocket ride of a university. Most people don't know the origin, but it was founded in the 60s as a graduate school for the hard sciences. So they recruited a bunch of Fields medal and Nobel winners, and then let in undergraduates years later. It was also Scripps Institute of Oceanography, which is a premier marine sciences institute here and so the reputation of ucsd has just continued to skyrocket it's in the top 30 in the world it's have wow. been around for 60 years so i got there and it was like this interdisciplinary stew that was the other cool thing about it is um stayed for grad school i had an economist on my committee a linguist a guy from electrical engineering and two computer science artificial intelligence guys so it was like really great for someone like me who like to synthesize information and not just get siloed into little boxes. So I, I ever since um traveled all over the world for, for my career, but uh if you're gonna be in the US, this is uh I believe the best place to be. We call it America's finest city.
1: Yeah, that's wild. So you 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 know I know that you went to uni, you um studied many different subjects and you decided not to complete your phd not to mm-hmm. you you wrote your thesis but you never defended your thesis why um
0: you know what it was kind of like it is there's an expression pouring good money after bad it was like that what i realized is that academia was like this halfway house where uh we hope people do something useful eventually in their careers but um, it wasn't for me. Um, you know, I it was you're slowly rolling back the foreskin of science, and maybe again you'll do something useful. But most of these guys are just guys, and it is m- many guys, um were just there for showing off. Uh like what I realized is by the questions they were asking me my PhD proposal defense was that three out of the five committee members hadn't actually read my dissertation proposal hadn't read it hadn't read it you know so uh, I. you're defending it against
1: people who haven't read it
0: yeah yeah and there's something wrong with these questions to throw to show how smart they are that was the objective it seems like to stump you to mess with you it was like this medieval apprenticeship torture process and you know as a practical matter unless you're going to teach computer science at a world-class university you don't need a phd no, and I'm not saying quit school like Bill Gates no. did or whatever. But I'm just saying that um, it wasn't stopping me from doing what I was already doing. So I just quit seven years in and started my first company. So that that entrepreneurial ride's been what I've been doing ever since. I was about 29 years old, and I said, "I'm not going to start my fourth decade on this earth still going to school."
1: You know, I just no. had it. But 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 that's really, I mean, that's really fascinating because. You know, you are clearly um, something you and I. You know, you and I talked before, and we talked about the things we have in common. Uh, you know, and we have this insane hunger for knowledge and learning and and those kinds of things, and not in a single area, in in a multitude of areas. That's right. Um, and and I think I believe it's my not not the truth. It's my opinion. I believe there. Are more and more of us in the world. I think there are more and more of us who are understanding that that mentality of singleized eyed um, learning it was great in the industrial age, and it's so done. And you know, and even old blokes like me are realising <laughs> this is not the way to go. You know, and I'm meeting people who've spent 30, 40 years in a career and going, oh God, I'm stuffed because I'd got nothing else to do. I only know this thing fantastically, brilliantly, and unless I'm going to go teach it and only that, I'm dead in the water. You know, um, I think that, do you think that people are beginning to realize that education in the form that it's in um, with our development, with the evolution of our brain is, is going to work?
0: well so so the thing is there's this acceleration of knowledge like one way i I describe it in my book is i talk about we get the functional knowledge transmitted to us culturally so for example to drive a car what do you need to know you need to know the rules of the road you need to know how to operate the gas pedal the steering wheel and the brakes right you need to know how to turn on the ignition and that's it then you get the functional benefits of the car what you don't need to know is finite element modeling to, to design the strong cage for the car you don't need all the thermodynamics of how the engine works you don't need to know how to program the sensors how to manufacture it i mean there are specialized automotive engineers that can spend like you said 30 40 years just on some tiny little subset of that right yep so we don't really uh, know uh the the details of stuff to be able to take advantage of it okay and so i think that um that's one insight i have you know, is that we just need to know how to functionally use it as opposed to know everything about it it's impossible with the amount of mushrooming knowledge in the world to know everything about everything but to your point i think there's a distillation process there's raw data there's information there's insights there's wisdom and and the people that are connecting the dots are serving a very very important editorial purpose like, for example, the reason I wrote the book is because I was sick of all these siloed people, you know, the, the medical imaging people, the behavioral economics, the social policy, the habit change people, the personal development people, they're all talking about stuff but in their little silos. And I wanted to just break down those walls and unify it. And you have to, that's, that's that synthesis is a very important task in our society, I believe, you know, breaking down the silos.
1: That I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and for me, everything, it's my way of looking at the world. It's not the truth, but it's my way of looking at the world. Everything is connected. And I can't disconnect one thing from another thing. In fact, it's much easier for me, and as part of my skill set, is to see the, the patterns and connections between things that seem to not be connected and that's part of my frustration, but you took on a massive um, undertaking in writing a book really about the evolution of the brain um, in bringing all those silos together. You know, the book is not, um, you know, 3,000 words long. It's, you know, it's actually quite a short book and, and it's um, broken into one, two page chapters. You know, I mean, there's a lot of sh- very short chapters in there um, that are really sort of hitting things very clear, very sharp. Just for a minute, just just take a minute and talk to us about that. Just about taking on that massive project of breaking down all those silos and then trying to synthesize it and condense it into mm-hmm. consumable pieces. Yeah, so dude, the, my, my
0: model, my objective for this was like kind of like the Cosmos book. I don't know, again, older yeah, listeners, uh, Carl Sagan back in the 80s or 90s. It's it kind of like the Neil deGrasse Tyson 1.0 before Neil deGrasse Tyson came along. And he was like billions and billions of stars and it was you know, making astrophysics clear to the general public and making it exciting. Well, I figure if you can do that for astrophysics, my goal is to do that for the brain. And again, the problem was that there's either too much detail or too little detail. There's the scientists that are talking about their research and everybody's talking about their studies. It's like, well, Danny Ariely at MIT did this with his MBA class and these were the results. 17 people said yes, 14 said no. You know, it's like, okay, your mileage may vary anyway. So it's not the specifics that matter. It's the fact that the effect is there, that that subconscious bias is there. And I wanted to explain it from an evolutionary perspective. And at the other extreme, you have the people that are essentially taking a bunch of their blog posts and making it into a book by summarizing other people's knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do was kind of make it deep and accessible at the same time. No jargon. Like you said, there's no flab. The reason there are shorter chapters in my book is because once I was done writing about something, I was done. There was no filler at all. I mean, I have like 250 call outs in that book and each yep. one of them, if you tried to apply them to your life, they're pretty profound, yep. you know, but uh, there's no extra. Um, and th- to do that, I had to write in an accessible style. I had to fill it with short stories. I, I did not cite, I'm very proud. One study, there is not a single footnote in the book. It's just designed as a straight read. So to, to package it up in a way that it would reach the biggest audience, and still not be kind of diluted or dumbed down, that was the
1: balancing act that I was trying to do. And, and you've done a phenomenal job of it, but it still seems massive to me. And so I wanna ask you just because of what you talked about in earlier about your uh, Defending your dissertation, and that they wanted to sound smart when they asked you the questions. So, how do those folks respond to the fact that there is no footnotes, there's no studies? Because I know that for anything that I've done in that direction, um, you know, I, well, I have to cite 14 uh, studies and uh, all this crap that I don't really care about. But that's <laughs> my opinion. So, what was it? What's it like for you? Are they coming at you?
0: um you know I, I it's early days in the launch of the book i'm sure some people will take shots at it but it was a very deliberate and conscious decision and i disclaim it at the beginning i say here's why i wrote the book here's how i wrote it if you're looking for this this book is not for you so yes. I, I give people an out it's fine take the off-ramp you know that that's okay with me it's not for everyone but my goal is impact let me, let me put it to you this way i think this will be interesting the reason I wrote the book, so I, you mentioned I ran an agency and we worked with the Googles and Facebooks, Expedia's, and Intuit, Siemens of the world, right? Mm-hmm. We made $1.2 billion in value that we could document in online marketing value for those companies. And it's because we were battle-tested veterans at how to convince people to act when they get to a website. That's my specialty. That's what my first book was about, landing page optimization. This is the second edition here. This is kind of like the Bible of the field, right? So it was, it was stuff that worked. And what, um, it, what we found is that our clients use that ethically, but what I'm finding now in the world is that there are a lot of unscrupulous companies, a lot of unscrupulous people, governments, and they're using this behavioral economics and evolutionary psychology stuff in ways that are frankly evil. Mm-hmm. and they're using it to divide us to suck money out of our wallet and i think ultimately is going to lead to um you know conflict and you know armed warfare you know and that's not a good direction to be going and i kind of felt like if you're for the consumer or the individual it's like bringing a knife to the proverbial gunfight mm-hmm. and i want to balance the scales i mean my goal with this book is to kind of say this is the real operating system of the brain this is how it works. And when you're being manipulated, at least you'll be able to spot some of this stuff. So I'm trying to even the playing field a little bit. Um,
1: And and I I don't really
0: care what the scientists think. um, And I don't care what uh, the people that use it for manipulation think. I'm trying to write this for all of us.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to go into a a lot of that um, because I think that, well, we know, I mean, you know, I. As you know, I study behavior and study the mind and how it works and and even persuasion technologies. Um, and what we know is, even from uh, mentalists, is you can literally describe what you're going to do, then do it, and people still let you do it. So that's an interesting thing with this book because you're saying, here's the roadmap, here's the path they will walk you down, you have to decide not to walk down the path But most people will still walk down the path. And the interesting thing is that we've just done a quick loop, which is they'll walk down that path in order to be part of a tribe. They'll walk down that path in order to belong to the Mercedes driving club. They'll walk down that path in order to um, go to this the shul or the temple or the, the church. And they'll walk down that path in order to be aligned with people who are of a certain skin color or race or whatever it is. It's fascinating to me because that, that those things you just talked about, I used to keep people inside trapped inside tribes. Yeah.
0: And, and I want to peel back tribes because there's another really interesting layer, like probably to me personally, the most interesting part of the book, as I was collecting all of the information, reading studies and reading about 30 books that I cite uh, in the, appendix just as as background. But the most interesting concept to me was that we evolved for culture spread. Yes, Um, That's an an actual evolutionary bet. And if you don't mind, I'll take the long way around, but I'll get back to how this relates to tribes. So um, to start with, if you think about any other animal or species that has a wide ecological range, they physically adapt. I use squirrels as an example. There are 10 gram squirrels and six kilogram squirrels. Mm. There are some that have webbed wings to fly between trees, others that hibernate in the heat of the desert underground, right? Mm-hmm. So why physical adaptations to their environment? 180 degree rotating ankles to run down trees head first, right? Really cool stuff. But if you look at human beings, there's the pygmies of in Africa that are about a meter 50. There's the mm-hmm. Dutch who are the world's tallest at about a meter 83. That's mm-hmm. not a huge range. No, you know, it's not, you know, we might have different eye color. We might have different facial features, skin color, but the physical adaptations have been rather small.
1: That's so true. what we
0: did the reason we won, evolutionarily speaking, or you put it another way, became a plague of locusts that took over the whole planet <laughs> is because we're the virus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <that's, laughs> oh God, the virus analogies of uh, Is because we placed one big bet on spreading culture that what we can learn from our surrounding tribe is more than we could ever learn in our own lifetime directly. And so this has all kinds of like bizarre physical and mental adaptations that were required. And that's really what makes us unique. So, for example, we're born covered in fat. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at other baby animals, you know, chimps, for example, or just about any animal. They can run, they can do stuff. We're just these, these giant blobs of fat. And the reason is, is because we use the fat to insulate our brain, our neurons, to so they have strong electrical connections that don't have crosstalk between the wires. And to do that, you need lots and lots of fat. And 85% of a baby's energy is being used to build its brain. Yes. So we think they're just drooling, pooping, crying, you know, useless things, but they're not. They're wiring up, they're busy. They're mimicking everything around them. And we even keep our bodies small, like I have a couple of teenagers, delayed adolescence, so we can focus on growing the brain and not waste the energy of maintaining a bigger, more functional body. And all of a sudden, there's this growth spurt in the teenage years where we become physically and sexually mature. So all of this stuff is so we can learn from people around us. We're the most kind of, we have the most plastic brains by far of any species. and then there's, but there's interesting stuff about culture spread. Um, in order to evolve, to spread culture, there's two things that have to happen. You have to have the ability to learn from others and you have to have the ability to s- s- teach others, actually three things. And you have, to have the ability to spread that knowledge very effectively and quickly. And that's where I'm get back to tribes in a minute. But one of the cool things is that uh, when we learn, Uh, We learn who to learn from, and there are studies that are cross-cultural that basically say we prefer to learn people of our own gender, we prefer to learn people that speak nonsense words in our dialect, even before we know what the meaning of the words is. So we're keying into the language. We prefer to learn people uh, from people that look like us ethnically, okay, in terms of skin color. So I know it's not a race, but I'm just saying Mm -hmm. that look like us, let's put it that way. And, and so there's all of this stuff also reinforces tribalism, right? Because we, if we're learning from people that are like us, we're not learning from people that are not like us and connecting to them. Mm-hmm. So, so that, and, and basically the the culture spread depends on my ability to ape everything you do and without modifications transmitted to other people. If you had to say, well, I'm a skeptic and I'm not sure that this really works and prove it to me, well then culture wouldn't spread very fast. But if you just model everything I do and pass it on to the next person, that's gonna create really, really strong tribal cohesion and, and spread that culture faster. So in a way, the history of humans isn't so much our individual history, it's of competing tribes and the most cohesive tribe that could spread knowledge the fastest with the highest fidelity wins. Hmm. And so that is kind of my insight into a lot of the politics and the things that go on there. So if you want to kick that around, feel free.
1: Yeah, there's um, there's so much to go into right there. We're going to take a break, and as we come to the end of the first part of this fascinating conversation with my mate Tim Ash, as I said, he's also a neuro freak. Um, And we're going to take a little break here and come back further into unleashing your primal brain. And uh, we will see you in two.